Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2011, the end of the school year. You can tell our crowds are thinning out a little just because of time constraints. Those of you who are here, we're certainly delighted to have you here. Our special guest today is Steve Denning, the author of The Leader's Guide to Radical Management. Hi, Steve, and thanks for coming. You'll need to turn your mic back on. There you go. Uh, thanks, and thanks for uh, organizing this. Sure, glad to have you here. So the Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central and Blackboard's Wimba and Illuminate, which uh, in July will become Blackboard Collaborate. It's also sponsored by the Web 2.0 Labs project, which includes Classroom 2.0 and those other community websites that you see there. Coming up at the ISTE show in Philadelphia, Saturday the 25th, our annual EduBloggerCon fifth year, the large unconference for those in education interested in social media and just connecting. So that's free. It is Saturday, June 25th from 8 to 5 p.m. at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. You do not need to be registered for ISTE to come, um, but either way, you are most welcome. And that's at edubloggercon.com. Of course, we'll be doing the Bloggers Cafe, just the ever-popular Bloggers Cafe, and our ISTE Unplugged program. If you've never presented at ISTE and you want to, now's your chance. Go ahead and sign up at ISTE Unplugged. We have announced the dates for the 2011 Global Education Conference, November 14th to 18th, 24 hours a day, five days. This last year, we had presentations from 62 countries, over 400 presentations. We were accused of not understanding what a keynote was because we had over 60 keynotes, but there's a fun story there. Anyway, globaleducationconference.com again this year. Hope you'll join us. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow, Sir Ken Robinson comes back to talk about his revised version of Out of Our Minds. Next week, James Bosco asks, is there participatory learning? Interesting question. We'll see what he says. On June 1st, we have our unschooling panel. And then Cal Newport talks about how to be a high school superstar. Lots of fun sessions coming up. We did add a couple. Carol Black on June 7th, July 7th to talk about her fascinating film called Schooling the World. And on August 2nd, Jane Nelson and Mary McGuire are going to talk about education, psychology, and democracy. And Jane is the author of the Positive Discipline series of books based on the Adler and Dreikers philosophies, largely psychology for democratic ages. Very interesting to see how that translates to some of the larger forces we're seeing in the world today and, and building social structures for um, coming to consensus and action in democracies. Um, anyway, lots of fun. Hope that there's one of those that you'll enjoy and you'll consider coming back. Uh, all of our recordings are up. Chris Gillibo, of course, last week talked to us about his book, The Art of Nonconformity, Mark Fenske on the Winner's Brain. Lots of others there. All of those in full illuminate recordings and also MP3s at futureofeducation.com. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is participative. There are little um, emoticons at the bottom of the participant window that you can click on. I'm going to click on the clapping hand right now. Thanking Steve for coming. And the smiley face, the thumbs down, the confused look. The hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand to take the microphone, which we're glad to have you do, or you can put your questions in the chat. I'm going to recommend that you go up to View Layouts and switch your layout to the wide layout. There's no way to have Illuminate default to that, but it is a much better layout for watching the chat. The new version of Illuminate comes out uh, at the end of June. It will be called Blackboard Collaborate 11, and it's going to be really, really fun. 
So don't worry, you don't have to learn too much here because all of this interface is going to change in what I think are pretty brilliant ways. This is a chance for those of you who are listening live to let us know where you're participating from. Look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that. It's to the left of the map and click on the map. Feel free to give a shout out in the chat as well so Steve can know where you're participating from. Canada, United States. Bill, I'm thinking, is that you in the Philippines? Greg in Kansas, Bill in Manila. Oh, good. Glad to have Perth, Australia here, Santa Barbara. Wherever you are, or if you're listening to the recording, again, we really appreciate that you've taken time to participate. So, Steve, this was a really fun book for me. Um, I have an advanced copy, an advanced, uncorrected proof, not for resale copy. So I don't know if you changed much, but I will say that that several times in the book, I kind of shouted out, hooray, oh, somebody's talking about this. <laughs> How long has the book actually been out, and what kind of a response have you been getting to it? Well, it came out in October last year, uh, so six months. And uh, I got quite a, uh, a strong support when it was published, and a whole lot of people uh, bought it. And um, the um, message, of course, though, is quite profound. It's basically saying that the way that Fortune 500 is being run, <laughs> those companies are uh, being run in a totally wrong fashion. The way, the, and by implication, the way the government is being run is quite wrong, and the way the education system is being wrong, run is quite wrong, and the way the health sector is being run is quite wrong. So this message. Uh, was, um, as the title of the book implies, uh, this is a radical message. <laughs> and uh, so the, uh, there was an initial kind of jolt as, as people saw, well, th this, is, this is kind of quite startling. Um, and as time has gone on, and I've been steadily uh, blogging about it, uh, currently on the Forbes, Forbes blog, people have started to see that this is actually uh, not just one of 11,000 books that are published on management each year, but something that does uh, transform the way we look at the whole subject. And so it's growing as a movement. This is uh, a movement to change the world, to change the way the workplace functions. And I give myself 10 years to do that. So we're kind of six months into a 10-year change plan. And I am um, very excited that a whole lot of people all around the world have heard this message and seen the implications and are starting to make it happen in their world. And that's what this is about. Obviously, I can't change the world alone, but I can spark the imaginations and spark the uh, insights of people that they can see what's wrong with the way things are currently being run. and get into a new mode and inspire other people to get into that mode to create champions who actually make this revolution happen. So I know you didn't come on the show having written a book about education, but I, I think you and I have both seen pretty substantive parallels there. 
what's intriguing about education in this context is that it sort of exists at two levels. You know, one level is how you actually think about how you run education and the environment in which the teachers work. And then the second level is the environment in which the students operate, who then will become uh, members of society who will join the workforces. So uh, we're going to try and sort of make the connections today. And, and as you and I talked in the pre-show chat, uh, I, I hope you'll guide me to the degree that you're comfortable about that. But I, uh, uh, I would like to make some what I think are some fun connections. And so does it matter that in education that the output is human? Well, that's, <laughs> that's what this whole thing is about. Uh, I mean, in fact, you can look at the 20th century as an experiment to see, suppose we treated people as things. Uh, what could we do? <laughs> How far would we get? Suppose we treated uh, employees as human resources, namely things. Suppose we treated customers as demand that we could manipulate. Suppose we, um, instead of communicating to them as people, suppose we told them what to do and just gave them instructions like machines. How far could we get? And I mean, for about two-thirds of the century, it seemed to be working out not too badly. The standard of living in the developed countries, anyway, was uh, uh, had improved enormously. So in that sense, it was uh, was wasn't doing too badly for uh, about two-thirds of the century. But by the end of the century, the whole thing had come unraveled, in that the the workforce was tired of being treated as human resources, and the customers actually had um, a great deal more power. Instead of being essentially powerless and being uh, dictated to by big corporations, there had been this massive shift in the balance of power from the seller to the buyer. The customer is now essentially the boss, because the customer suddenly, through the internet, had reliable, instantaneous information about what the options were and through global competition had multiple options and could moreover communicate with other customers and find out what was going on and speak back to big organizations. So suddenly, customers were in charge of the marketplace, a, a staggering shift in the balance of power. And so the whole model of treating customers and employees as things um, fell apart. And so what we're seeing now is the dismantling of that experiment and a whole new set of organizations being run in a very different way in which you actually treat employees as people and you treat customers as people. And you realize that unless you do that, you are not going to survive as an organization. And so that's what's happening in the private sector. And uh, paradoxically, what we see in the education sector is that at the very moment that the private sector has decided that this way of, of running things, of treating people as things is, um, is actually counterproductive and, and disastrous. Um, it's growing in, in strength and, um, and support within the education sector. So I, it's, it's really quite paradoxical that these things are happening in sort of contrary directions. I'm going to uh, suggest something, and I'd be curious to know if you think it might answer that question. It feels to me that sort of one of the responses to losing control of institutions and organizations that have held control is to grip tighter. 
could could that be a part of the story here? Could it be that these are sort of the last gasp efforts to maintain control? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the private sector see this very much. I mean, um, some organizations are absolutely horrified by what I'm talking about and saying that everything that you know and love doing, the way in which you're running your whole organization, is actually driving your organization into the grave. Uh, <laughs> that is not a is not a welcome message for for many people. And one reaction, as you say, is to pull back and and to tighten and to run faster and to grip tighter and to move and to see whether we can uh, through more effort uh, uh, sort of get back to where we were. But that that age is gone. That whole uh, it's over. And um, but in the education sector, I, I think to some extent you don't have the same uh, kind of sanctions in the in the private sector. The, uh, this this change is being driven by the uh, by the economics of it. The fact that these old organizations are increasingly unproductive um, and the, the returns on their assets is declining. Their life expectancy is declining. They're going out of business faster and faster. The uh, the commitment of the people doing the work, only one in five people fully engaged in their work. I mean, these are disastrous uh, <laughs> results. And, and the stock market has taken account of it. So organizations like Apple and Amazon and Salesforce.com, I mean, having massive uh, gains recognized by the stock market, whereas the old stalwarts like Walmart and GE uh, basically uh, struggling just to stay in place and, and actually declining at fairly um, remarkable rates. So in the private sector, I mean, the sanctions are more immediate and more direct. And, and, uh, and so one has people's attention. And the, the education sector, I mean, one can go on doing the wrong thing for really quite a long time without uh, the, the consequences of that becoming apparent, just as in the public sector one can see organizations grinding along for very long periods without the consequences of their, uh, of their, uh, <laughs> their action. Someone's asking, Walmart is declining? Wow. Well, I mean, Walmart, the share price of Walmart is, is uh, barely what it was 10 years ago, whereas Apple is 30 times and Amazon is uh, about 10 times and Salesforce.com is 10 times. These are uh, these are not tiny little differences. These are massive differences. And the reason why Walmart's going out of business is basically Amazon is able to get you the same product cheaper. And Walmart's uh, game plan, business model, was always we have this big box and you drive 40 minutes to go to our big box and we'll get you the cheapest uh, product. Uh, Amazon can now have it delivered to in two days free. and you have a cheaper product and you don't have to bother to drive 40 minutes. So basically Walmart business model is uh, is in real trouble. So and GE, one of, I mean the organization, if you said who is the best exponent of traditional management, it's GE. Their share price is half of what it was 10 years ago. They are basically um, they are uh, going uh, <laughs> the wrong direction. So. Um, Someone's uh, John is asking Apple is um, is for tight control. Uh, this new way of managing that I'm talking about is actually highly disciplined, but it's also 
leaves a huge amount of scope for individual initiative. It's, first of all, focusing the, the organization on delighting customers, not just satisfying customers, but at, I mean, enchantment, joy, happiness, creating an experience where the customer wants to do more business with, with the organization. That becomes the whole goal of the organization. And uh, uh, <laughs> the, um, focusing the organization on delighting the customer, um, you can say that the, someone here is saying Steve Jobs is a dictator, but he is focusing the whole organization on delighting the customer. And you can see in a whole series of uh, quite different sectors in retail computing, in music, in uh, mobile phones, and now in tablets. Uh, this way of running an organization where you have the whole organization focused on delighting the customer, you get a, uh, a dramatically uh, transformation of the sector. Uh, I mean, Apple has 4% uh, of the mobile phone market but 50% of the profits because people absolutely have to have uh, an iPhone. So it's running organizations so that they delight the customers. I mean, the, the analog in the education sector is to delight uh, the students, so to focus the whole education uh, activities on learning the students, putting the students first. At present, what the education sector, health sector is, is run for the, the convenience of the administrators and convenience of testing and simplicity of testing. This is about uh, reversing that and saying this is about creating learning experiences for children or it's creating uh, well-being for the patients in the, in the health system, not about the convenience of the doctors or the convenience of the administrators. So it's about a different focus of the organization. Uh, the commentators, I think, are right that there are some aspects of Apple that are not particularly attractive. So I wouldn't say that they're doing everything of what I'm saying in the book, but they are uh, an exponent of a, a number of, of key aspects of it. I would say sales, I don't, in fact, don't talk about Apple in the book, but I do talk about a company like salesforce.com, which, which is more faithfully implementing the, all of the principles uh, in the book. So I'm going to jump in for a second here because R. Walcott's asking a really good question. But I want to go back to John's first question. So John says, Walmart is declining? Wow. It feels to me like there's some really significant parallels between the total quality movement and the current time. In the 80s and 90s, the total quality movement, we really wanted things to be different, but a lot of the same practices. But it, it felt as though traditional business was doing quite well. Now I think what you're saying is there's this, for many people, sort of invisible change that's occurring, which is you've just described that these companies are, are actually not doing very well. They, they're not lasting very long and they're not making very much money. And we're go that's going to surprise us. And those things that a lot of those techniques that were developed in the total quality movement or the time are kind of part of this larger story of employee involvement that now becomes critical. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, yes, but. <laughs> yes. I mean, the quality movement is, is clearly one of the antecedents of this kind of thinking, and a huge part of it uh, comes from them, of um, focusing on quality of, 
of working in an iterative fashion to get uh, continuous improvement. I mean, Toyota is, is clearly an exponent of doing um, those things. But I have gotten into some fights with some of the quality people by pointing out, for instance, that uh, at Deming, at Deming uh, who is one of the great saints of the quality movement, if you read his 14 principles, there is not a single reference to the customer. The customer is kind of absent from uh, his vision of the 14 most important things that an organization should do. And what's dramatically different about this way of running organizations is that it's totally focused on the customer. Everything begins with the customer. What is the customer thinking? What are the hopes, the fears, the dreams? Uh, how can we solve the problems of the customer? How can we understand what the customer might want if we could deliver it? And then surprising the customer by actually delivering it. That thinking, uh, which uh, one might say that it was implicit in what um, was in the quality movement, was not explicit. And so I'm getting into fights with the quality people by, by pointing that out. But I mean, it is quite important to actually make it explicit, because that in the current situation where there's been this huge shift in power from the, the seller to the buyer, uh, the, the customer is the boss. The manager isn't the boss. Teacher isn't the boss. The administrator isn't the boss. The customer is now the boss, and so making the whole organization revolve around that fundamental insight becomes a key. And that, if you read the quality literature, um, was implicit and occasionally explicit, but it wasn't the driving force. What's new about this is to, and different perhaps from the quality movement, is to make this much more central. So and I think that's explicit. a good lead into our Walcott question which is schools following the business sector, are you saying schools should follow the new business model? If the new business model is delighting the customer, is the answer yes? Yes. <laughs> yes. The, yeah, I mean, it's putting students first. I mean, it, it has to be uh, adapted, because I mean, students aren't customers. And uh, to some extent, they don't know what's, uh, what they need or want. But it's creating learning experiences uh, for students so that they become prepared for a life in which they are going to have uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 jobs throughout their whole life. Um, the idea that you're, uh, you're preparing someone to have one uh, or even two two careers uh, is is gone. It's it's about uh, creating this learning capacity, and so it's it's a shift from teaching to learning. It's a shift from where the teachers and we've got the answers to here are the students, and how can we inspire in them this capacity to adapt and cope and and uh, innovate and and uh, and learn how to have these multiple careers, which uh, they get to live with. Uh, and will be, uh, so it, it in the same way, in, in, the, in the private sector, this, it's this shift from big corporations saying, uh, we're making this stuff, and you're going to buy what we make, and we're going to persuade you to uh, buy it through advertising or whatever means. I mean, they, you take what we make. In that case, there's a shift 
to saying, we want to understand what are your problems, what are your hopes and dreams, how can we be responsive and and um, and do less of what's irritating you and do a lot more of what's what's uh, thrilling you and fascinating you and enchanting you. And so the the analog in education is it's a shift from teaching and delivering messages and and um, and and components to in, inspiring so this, this learning capability the within the students more slowly or. Uh, with difficulty because of the lack of sort of true market forces, then it is the voices of the students, the parents, and the teachers, now voices who that have gained power, that should sort of be demanding that the system um, provide uh, them with better circumstances or delight them. Yeah. I mean, well, I would say create inspiring learning experiences. Uh, create learning experiences where you can measure that uh, students are actually increasing skill and, and putting in, in place measures that enable the students themselves to see whether they are in fact learning and whether they are in fact getting better. I mean, the, the trick in this is to uh, not have the students, uh, not having the teachers testing the students, but having them, the students themselves see, am I learning? Am I getting better? Am I, am I becoming more competent? Am I gaining skills? Am I acquiring capabilities? Once you provide the students with that kind of understanding, then you start to have a virtuous circle where people are wanting to learn. If it's how do I beat the teacher? How do I cheat on this exam? How do I get a, a leg up on the SAT scores? Then you're in a whole different ball game from when you're having students trying to see how can I learn more? How can I how can I gain more capability? How can I take on more difficult challenges? How can I uh, acquire capability to do those kinds of things? This is a a very different dynamic. So in the book, you use the we're trying to create the here. phrases that we're going from shareholder capitalism to customer capitalism. In my mind, I translated that that we're going from institutional education to individual education. Do you like that? Would you modify that in any way? I tend to talk about say it's a shift from teaching to learning, but but I mean yes, in the sense that teachers are part of institutions uh, and learning is individual. I I would I mean we're so talking about in the same, the same we're actually in a part of the book that you the delighting clients part, and you make a connection for me. I think it's in that part of the book of. Uh, and I'm going to represent this, say, by sort of three-letter blocks, alphabet blocks, so A, B, and C. And A is where we are, and let's say C is making money. And we often try to go directly from A to C. So the main goal is making money. And I think what you say is that you go from A to B, which is delighting customers, and you'll naturally then go from B to C, which is appropriately making money. If I th that, to me, resonates very closely with what I would say about education, which is we talk a lot right now about going directly to improving the economy by improving education. We're trying to get to see improving the economy. 
but it feels like the B, which is educating the individual or providing them with learning opportunities or helping them become better people, would naturally lead to a better economy. So do you think that's the, that, that we're missing that message in education as well, that we're so focused on students to improve our economy that we're missing the opportunity to help them become more whole individuals? Well, I, I so think there needs to be more emphasis on that. Um, and I, I mean, I agree pretty much with the A, B, and C uh, schema that you laid out for the private sector. I would put it even more strongly in the sense that, I mean, focusing on trying to make money actually leads organizations to do things which get in the way of making money. In other words, if I uh, tell you, Steve, my object in life is to take money from your wallet and put it in my wallet, uh, then you, as a, someone who is about to do business with me, is immediately wondering, oh my gosh, what am I doing <laughs> talking to this person? Uh, how do I protect my wallet from this person? It, it doesn't lead to a, uh, in fact, it gets in the way of a productive relationship. And if you do that in an organization, you en encourage people up and down the, the hierarchy to do things that um, get in the way of, of building sensible relationships. So it's not just that it's a slow way of getting from A to C. It's actually a counterproductive way of getting from A to C. So an oblique goal. Um, delighting the customer. Term, I mean, studies have been done to show that it's much more, much more profitable than focusing the organization on trying to make money. So I, it, it's kind of a, a stronger version of what, what you described. And in the education sector, I, I think the, the link between improving the economy and educating children is, is there are a number of causal links sort of between those two steps. Um, and if you look at um, look at what's happening in, uh, say, the job market, I mean, obviously it's a huge shock for many graduates, uh, <laughs> recent graduates joining the job market now that there are no jobs for them. And uh, so that's a shock. And you start to ask yourself why that's so. Uh, it's not because uh, the, all those graduates had a poor education. It's because the um, you look at the statistics between 1980 and 2005, the uh, companies older than five years uh, produced zero net jobs. Zero net jobs by companies older than five years. That's basically all the companies in the Fortune 500. The jobs they created were uh, balanced out by jobs that were lost. So all of the jobs, 40 million jobs in that period were created by firms younger than five years, startups. Uh, and so what we're looking at is an economy which is not producing jobs. Large organizations have stopped producing jobs because they're being run in a way that actually takes as many jobs away as it creates. And so to think that we're going to fix the economy by uh, training people. Um, uh, I mean, that's part of the longer term solution, but it's certainly not going to fix the economy in the short run. The short run, um, uh, short to medium term solutions and jobs are going to be about actually 
creating organizations that do generate jobs that um, are not uh, losing jobs as fast as they are creating them. So they uh, they are related, but there are many causal so links. So I wanted to shift a little to uh, your educating material on self-organizing because I'm very curious as to how um, uh, you you say in the book why is it these teams why is it teams keep being rediscovered hmm? and and I'm curious if we have cognitive blinders or limitations that often drive us toward bureaucracy rather than providing the freedom for sort of self-organizing teams. Um, are you seeing these um, grow, or are we going to see sort of another cycle of uh, teams being rediscovered and going away and then having to come back at a future time? Well, I, I hope it doesn't happen again. <laughs> uh, I mean, it has been going on for 190 years ever since uh, Mary Parker Follett started lecturing on teams in the uh, in 1920s, and uh, so every 10 years, 15 years or so, somebody would rediscover teams. And I mean, the book I argue that the reason why this is happening is that management thinking is an interlocking set of assumptions. Traditional management is this interlocking set of assumptions. You're making money for the shareholders, and the best way to do that is to control individuals, have bosses controlling individuals, and have them focused on making money for the, the companies. And so there are a set of interlocking assumptions. Uh, changing that is not going to be effective simply by saying, well, let's have teams. You actually have to change the goal of the organization and the values of the organization and the way that managers and people in the organization communicate with each other. In other words, there's a, a set of systemic changes that are needed all at once. And so in one sense, uh, nothing in my book is new. Every uh, one of the seven principles I talk about there have been tried and tested and proven in many different uh, organizations uh, for quite long periods. But what is new is doing all of the, these things at the same time, delighting the customers, having self-organizing teams, having values that support that, communicating not through commands but through conversations, and, uh, and coordinating the work not through bureaucracy but in these short iterative cycles, doing all of those things together, suddenly you get something that is robustly sustainable and that has the, the capability to withstand the, the different set of assumptions from, from the traditional management. So I think if, you, if we see it in this way that we're, we're talking about a systemic change, a whole new set of assumptions about how to run organizations which actually interlock or interdependent, and if you do them all together, you are able to, uh, in a sense, like getting out of Earth's gravity, getting out of the gravity of, of traditional management, you're able to get into an orbit, and, um, and uh, what you see in these organizations, they just start flying, it's that operating at a different level of capability. And so that, that is what I think is exciting and what gives me hope that we can, in fact, 
uh, not fall back into a so I really traditional way like of doing things, but actually um, establish a new, as though a new normal. The shifts in power from the internet are dramatic enough to kind of radically alter things. But I'm left with this question of, you know, do we have kind of dual narratives that run in our brains, um, kind of control versus agency, uh, you know, that often lead us back in cycles to providing more power and then taking it away. Um, and and, and I'm the, I don't want to assume that you would agree with that, but if that is true, are there things that we can do to help keep ourselves focused on um, allowing agency and allowing these teams to function where we might kind of have natural desires to control? Yeah, I mean, obviously we grow up in families where uh, <laughs> our parents are the bosses. <laughs> our parents, our parents are telling us what to do, and um, and uh, we all grow up in that environment. Um, so, and we organizations have been run this way for thousands of years. So there's all this muscle memory that we have to uh, kind of lose, have to forget, and uh, and develop muscle memory of different way of running. Organizations, but my sense is that it's—I um, mean, it's happening. I mean, you can see it in the in the political sphere in the Middle East. You can see it, and in Europe, uh, and it's—I um, uh, mean, there's there's a whole capability of communicating uh, social media that it just wasn't there. I mean, even five years ago, I mean, it's, in, it's amazingly how how recent this is. I'm looking at my book, which was written in 2005 on storytelling, and realized that I mean, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and uh, and YouTube hardly existed then. I mean, uh, this has all happened ex extraordinarily recently. So, as as the impact of that is felt, uh, I think. This is going to accelerate the process of uh, losing the muscle memory of the old way of doing things and acquiring muscle memory of this different way of, of doing things. And I'm very hopeful about the younger generation that they have grown up in this world of, of interactive communication there uh, and simply uh, unwilling to accept the things that Older generations put up with that you work in this big lumbering bureaucracy for years and years. Um, younger generation is basically saying, "Well, that's that's not for me because one, you can't promise a career anyway. So why am I sticking around? I'll, so long as you uh, have something for me today, I'll I'll be here. But the, the moment I see a better opportunity, I'll be on on my way." And this is a big shock for organizations who are used to having. Employees as captives, if you like, for long periods. Um, basically, that's that's over. So there's a whole new world um, opening up. But the communications, the young generation, the and the recognition that the old way isn't working, just even on their own terms, it's failing. So that um, I mean, there's a new world opening up in front of our eyes. And, uh, so I'm, it will ha it will happen. Uh, it will happen uh, either. <laughs> Slowly and in an ugly <laughs> fashion, with a whole lot of um, uh, fight back, 
or it will happen, and what I'm obviously trying to do is accelerate and make it happen easily and elegantly and intelligently and and uh, point out to people, look, there is a better so way. So you've led me down a very interesting thought process, and, uh, and I'll tell you briefly. Organizations which I'm have already done it. Douglas and, uh, McGregor so and why don't we get into this mode? Uh, drive and the understanding we've had about compensation of knowledge workers, which obviously gets completely ignored and, and in many ways is a part of, mm -hmm. could, could be argued as a part of the financial collapse. Those mm -hmm. who believe in the cycles of history, I wonder if your muscle memory metaphor is actually kind of uh, instructive. Meaning, do, do you have to go through a crisis in order to get to the kind of change we're talking about? And if not, how could someone, say, who's in a school, who reads your material and really likes it, how could they move forward in such a way as to avoid the crisis but precipitate the change? Well, I <laughs> I don't don't really believe that you have to um, to go through a uh, horrendous crisis. I mean, if, if action isn't taken, that's what will happen. We will have these increasingly horrendous crises, and eventually something will happen. But I mean, as a as a species, we have been smart enough to see the writing on the wall, and so the writing is on the wall about the past way of doing things and. In a sense, we know how to do it differently. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we uh, we can uh, see that. And uh, and I mean, those who those who have been able to see it join together, band together with others who can see it, um, form groups, form communities, um, and become the revolution. Lead. Lead this change, make it happen. In, I mean, it always starts with one person, and then two, and then three, and then four, and as as it spreads, you have more and more groups uh, uh, seeing this, understanding it, finding more champions, linking up together, using social media or whatever means to band together to make to accelerate this and to make it happen quickly and intelligently. We don't have to go through um, a few more massive financial crises uh, to realize that there's a fundamental problem. And we already know, know that. It's a question of using our, our smarts to, uh, to grasp that and to, and to have the courage to stand up and say, look, this is better. This is a different way. It's, it's maybe strange, but it's obviously better. And What's more, the way in which we've currently been doing things is failing. Here are the so that is a really nice segue into we know it. We can this see question it. of storytelling, because it would seem that storytelling becomes a critical part of helping to facilitate those changes. And if we look at education and the stories that are being told currently, uh, especially by um, our president in the Department of Education, there's a sense that those stories aren't actually addressing the current needs. So, so what role does story playing here, and what could we learn about storytelling that would make a difference in how we approach the circumstance? Yeah, well, I got into storytelling because I was a desperate 
man, I was in the World Bank and trying to spark change in the organization and, and with what I thought was a blindingly obvious idea, but no one was listening. And it wasn't until I stumbled on the power of the story that I was actually able to get people to listen and then uh, fairly soon, suddenly, the whole organization was responding. And so I spent the last spent four years in the World Bank using stories to change that and then the last 10 years coaching other organizations on how to use the power of story to, to do this. And so the book, uh, to answer Greg's question, uh, which companies exemplify the, the behavior? I mean, it, uh, in Terry's question, there are a number of positive stories in the organizations of companies that exemplify the behavior. And for the most part, they're not big companies. Uh, they are uh, small to medium companies. Uh, the largest company in the book would be Salesforce.com, which is only 11 years old, but it's now worth seven, $17 billion, so it's become uh, very big very fast. And that's what happens when you do this. You, you grow very quickly because you become very successful. But there are really a, 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 a sort of a considerable number of stories of organizations that are doing this. And it's, it's stories that will inspire people um, to make this happen. The, uh, and the, the Montessori story is one that I put on my blog, and, um, which I think is a great example in education where it, it, uh, I'm not an education expert, but as far as I can see, it exemplifies this whole spirit of learning uh, in an education sector. And so I'd be telling uh, so I think about the Montessori schools and how they exemplify this change and using those stories to inspire people. But I'm intrigued because those of us who sort of live in this world, we've all got lots of stories, whether it's Sudbury schools or big picture schools or KIPP, or, I mean, yeah. and, they, and they really span a variety of philosophies. But those stories don't right. seem to ever inform the main, inform or reform the main narratives. So I'm, I, I need to study this a little further because it feels as though we're, uh, there's, there's an opportunity here that we're not grabbing. Right. Well, I mean, in my work with organizations using story and with leaders to use the power of story is that I coach people on what will be an effective story? What will be a story that will inspire people uh, to want to change? And there's a certain pattern of stories that, that does that. Uh, and I mean, the, the paradoxical thing is that a low story is a very powerful way to communicate. If you look at the actual use of stories by leaders in politics and in organizations, I would say that on balance, uh, more than half of those stories do not work more than half of those stories are ineffective in communicating and inspiring change. And so my workshops are showing people, well, why is that so? What, what do you have to have in a story that will inspire change? And I mean, one part of it is that the, the story has to be a story in which the, the listener will uh, perceive themselves in the story. In other words, you, you start from the listener. Start from who are the people that you are trying to communicate something to and what do they currently believe and why do they not see the truth as you see it. And then 
finding a story in which they can perceive themselves in a different light. So it's likely to be a true story, a story that actually happened. So it's not an imaginary story. It's, just, it's a story with a happy ending, a story with an inspiring, positive close. And it's told in a very minimalist fashion so that there's plenty of space for the listener to actually perceive themselves in the story. I mean, just to give an example of what this looks like in a leadership setting. I mean, I was trying to persuade uh, the World Bank to share its knowledge. World Bank, this big international lending organization, lends billions of dollars <coughs> to poor countries to eliminate uh, reduced poverty. Uh, and I was trying to persuade the organization, why don't we share our knowledge? We could share our knowledge with all the people who make decisions about poverty. Uh, we could be a much more effective organization. And I couldn't get anyone to listen to this. This was in um, 1996 when I was trying to do this. And until I stumbled on a, a story, and the story is a very simple and quick one, and I can tell it to you right now. It's, I'd be talking about the future and the future of the organization and what's it going to be like. Well said it's going to be like today. Let me tell you about something that happened just a few months ago in June 1995. This is in early 1996. But in June 1995, a health worker in a little village in Zambia in Africa logged onto the website for the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, and got the question, got the answer to a question on how to treat malaria. Now, that was June 1995, not June 2015. It wasn't the capital of Zambia, it's a little village 600 kilometers away. And this is not a rich country, this is Zambia, one of the poorest countries in the world. But you know the most important part of this picture for us in the World Bank? The World Bank is not in this picture. The World Bank does not have its knowledge organized to share with all the millions of people who make decisions about poverty. But just imagine if it was. Just imagine if we got organized, think what an organization we could become. And yeah, that started to resonate to us with staff and the managers. And then the president heard about it. He said, right, let's do it. And so that story, it's only 29 words long. But it's about a true story. It actually happened. Go to Zambia, check it out. It actually happened. It's about something that ends in a very positive way. We got the answer to a question on how to treat malaria. And it's told in this very minimalist fashion so that the listener, if the story's working well, the listener can imagine a different world. And so in the education sector, what you'd be looking for is a similar kind of story where the listener could imagine themselves in a true story that's positive in tone and told in this very rapid fashion where they can imagine this different kind of world. And then you link it to the idea, what if? What if your school was, was being run this way? Just imagine the impact that this would have, with not just your school, but every school in your district. Think of the impact that would have if the whole country was being, education system was being run in this fashion. It's um, inspiring the listener to imagine a new story. And so that's what we do in workshops on storytelling is you show people how to craft stories that can pick up even the most difficult change-resistant audiences and in a sense hold them into the future. I mean, the World Bank is a very change-resistant organization, but they were Steve, I've just downloaded on my Kindle app pretty much any audience is storytelling. Story. So hopefully I'll story. have a better sense of this after reading that. What about visioning processes? What about uh, helping groups to construct stories? Uh, what's the role of that in storytelling? 
Well, my uh, discovery, one of my discoveries was that, I mean, future stories are about the most difficult stories to tell. I mean, you read a lot of leadership books and they talk about, well, the object of a leader is to tell a future story that will inspire people to follow them. Well, I said, well, that's great. Uh, can you give me an example? And uh, I found that there are only three examples that were ever given. One was um, uh, Martin Luther King, I have a dream. The other was Churchill, uh, uh, we will fight them on the beaches. And then there was Kennedy, we'll put a man on the moon. So. Uh, those are the only three stories that uh, actually exemplified this um, telling future stories. And actually, the future story is about the most difficult story to tell um, because the future is so unknowable uh, that it becomes a very implausible kind of story. So my strong advice is not to, uh, in fact, to find a, a shortcut to that and to tell a story like the Zambia story, which is actually a story about the past, but which inspires the listener to imagine the future story. So I'm talking about something that's actually happened, but I'm inspiring the listener to imagine a, a future story. And in a sense, it's uh, something that the science fiction writer William Gibson talked about, that the, the future is already here. It's just very unevenly distributed. So what you're doing with something like that Zambia story, you're pointing to part of the future that's already happened, and you're saying, why don't we make the future like that? And because it's already happened, I mean, you can't argue with it. It's, it's happened. It happened in, in June 1995. It actually happened. So you don't have the argument with future stories, well, that will never happen. Uh, if you are a poet like Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King, then sure, use the uh, future story, but you you need to be a poet. Uh, the, the story about the past, you don't need to be a poet. Anyone can do it. It's very simple. It actually happened. It's very uh, straightforward. And to put all of that, the listener does all of the hard work. And what's more, the listener imagines a future that's totally um, adapted to their own personal setting. I don't know what their personal setting is, but if the story is working well, they're imagining a future story of in their own personal So sort of a final question and for so me, and uh, if there's uh, a question in the chat that I missed, I hope you'll put it back in or the productivity of communication. But so a lot of our listeners are going to be people who don't feel like they're in power positions in their educational organizations. What advice do you give to them about finding and telling those compelling stories? How, how does someone who's not in a power position start telling those stories? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the reasons why I was um, uh, in that position in the World Bank trying to tell that story is that basically I, did, I was being I uh, kicked out of the World Bank at the time. I, had, uh, I mean, the politics of the organization had changed. And my boss had retired, and the president of the World Bank had suddenly died, and somebody else was being appointed to my position. I had no uh, position. Basically, the management was trying to push me out the door. So um, this is not something that requires a power position. This is something where in that particular case, I said, look, I am actually not ready to be kicked out the door. <laughs> I'm going to make this happen. And so I 
made a decision, I am going to commit myself to uh, making this change happen, and I will do whatever it, it takes uh, to make it happen. And I believed it was important enough uh, to do that. And, um, and the curious thing was that once I, once I did that, once I made that commitment, an all-out commitment, I am going to make this happen, um, things did start to happen. In fact, the organization started to respond, and the president changed. So, this, it, it might have gone the other way. It, I could have been kicked out of the organization, and I would have said, well, fine. I, I thought it was worth doing, and I still believe that. But this is about actually having a life worth living. It's about having a life where you say, look, here is something that I feel is worth doing, something I care about. I am going to make it happen. One might be in a situation where one doesn't have that luxury. You might not have the financial means to, uh, to sustain it if you are thrown out of the organization. But it's about having a meaningful life and saying, I'm going to stand up for what I believe is what is right, what must happen, what needs to happen, and having the courage to join with others uh, to make it happen. And so it's, it's, it's about having a meaningful life. It's about having a, a life that's... Um, that actually makes a difference. And so my strong um, suggestion is if you want to have a meaningful life, this is about doing, taking up the challenge, learning how to communicate, inspire other people, uh, understand why things are going the way they are, and understanding it does, what, it how to be doing and inspiring use of social media other champions, as other colleagues who share the same vision to make Gathering around colleagues who, who think similarly would provide for some of that strength to be able to stand up in your own sort of uh, local organization and say, hey, I, you know, I think this is really important. Uh, whereas prior to those uh, connections we had in social media, we might have felt less emboldened. So ho hopefully that's a sign of hope. Um, so we're pretty much close to the end of the show. If anybody has a final question, we'll let you take it. Steve, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I, that was just fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm, I hope you're right. I've, I have a feeling the crisis piece is going to stick with me for a little while. I'm a, I'm a little afraid we'll have a hard time making the changes just because we want to. But, but I really appreciate it. I love the book. It's called The Leader's Guide to Radical Management Reinventing the Workplace for the 21st Century. I think it has significant implications for education and the environment in which teachers work. Uh, we did have a show earlier, I think about two years ago, on uh, teachers as partners in running schools. And I'm also kind of intrigued by the degree to which in some chartered schools we're probably going to find more democratic processes with the teachers being involved in how the schools get run. Uh, any final thoughts, Steve? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the social media point is, is really quite dramatic. I mean, if Egypt can do it, if Tunisia can do Thanks it, so if much, Syria Steve. can do it. <laughs> uh, really appreciate you I mean, being here. Let's hold Thanks everybody back. for coming. Let's I am let's clapping. Make this again. revolution happen. Um, I, I did download uh, what's it called here? The Leader's Guide to Storytelling. <laughs> I'll send you an email let you know if I've found the answer. But thanks for coming to the Future of Education. Coming up tomorrow, Sir Ken Robinson again uh, on his revised book, Out of Our Minds. Thanks, Steve. Have a great night. Okay.
Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. It's a good message. So we let you go Thank on you. time. Join the revolution. Taking a full hour, and so feel free just to close out by clicking the X, Steve, on the top right of your screen, or going to file and exit. Uh, those of you who'd like to stick around for a couple minutes, I'll stick in the chat, but then we will close the session out so the recording can process. Take care. Good night. And, and that great job, Steve, could either be you or me, so let's both take it. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. No, thanks. And I'm talking with you tonight. Oh, that's a terrific offer. Does anybody have any final questions? There was one that got mentioned here. Terry wanted to know about the philosophy of um, fire my boss, where the job is just to earn a living, so find the highest paying, so on your own time you can do your passion, moral needs. Sounds like that would be. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I mean, my, I, I'm not too keen on firing the boss. I'm in, more in, inclined to inspiring my boss to see the world differently, and to, uh, I mean, essentially, that's what I was doing in the World Bank. I didn't try on my bosses. I, um, I inspired them to see the world differently and inspired a lot of colleagues and, and, uh, to start acting very differently so that uh, they didn't need to be fired. They, they simply started to view the world differently. And uh, so I'm not too keen on to living one's passion in the evenings and weekends. Um, I am I'm in keen on actually living my passion on my day job. I'm spending most of my most of my time uh, in, in working hours. I want I don't want that to be uh, downtime. I want that to be meaningful. I want that to be part of my passion and my moral needs. So it's about creating. Do you know Ricardo Semler? Uh, his whole life is uh, is passionate and meaningful and responsive to moral needs. So uh, did they end up being a good example of this? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know him, but I've read about him, yes. And yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't really gone back and looked at whether some of these uh, more detailed principles that I describe in the book are reflected there, but the idea that one uh, his thinking that one, one lives a meaningful so in, life. In a previous life, I had an experience. I, uh, I ran a, a, a main thrust company that did a subcontracting about. process for Hewlett Packard. And we were very much into Deming and Edward de Bono. And we had huge improvements over the previous subcontractor in the range of four to 500% improvements. And we did so by allowing the team to kind of define their own processes and get engaged, and they actually had a once-a-week book reading program where they wrote a business book together and talked about how they could implement those things in their team. And um, we got shut down fairly quickly. Uh, the, first, the first thing that happened was we were told that we couldn't hold the book reading program because it looked like we weren't working to the other subcontractors. And then um, in a very fast fashion, 
uh, we actually lost the contract, even though we were performing phenomenally. Right. Uh, what what is it that happens in these situations where um, is this again? I want to kind of want to go back to the cognitive. Is there a response that people have to this sometimes, which is the exact opposite of what you hope for, that, that you would expect them to say hooray, and yet they want to shut it down? Well, it's exactly that kind of experience that led me to write this book, because uh, I, I saw in in knowledge management, that basically all of the great knowledge management programs were shut down in a similar fashion. I mean, the world famous programs, and BP and IBM and Ernst and Young, and all of those programs got closed down. Um, and similar things happen in storytelling, and similar things happen in innovation, and similar things happen in marketing, and similar things happen in lean. And, Similar things happen in software development. So I saw in all of these different fields, it wasn't the particular thing that was being closed out. There was a kind of systematic destruction of anything that was creative and energizing and innovative in the organization. So I started to look into why why was this so? Why were why were these intelligent people acting in this very unintelligent fashion? And that's how I stumbled on the fact that, in fact, they had this underlying set of assumptions, this mental model, mental model of how to run an organization that systematically led to those results. And then I started to see, well, is there an, is there an alternative? Is there another? And so the book is about organizations which are have a different mental model, a different interlocking set of assumptions. And uh, if and that's the one reason why these things get closed down is because they, they change one of the things in that mental model, but they leave the other things in place. And say so you introduce teams um, or quality, it changes part of the assumptions, but you still have the making money for the shareholders and individual as reporting to bosses and um, giving commands, and those set of assumptions then basically crush the innovative activity. So it's it's realizing that you need systemic change. That any one of these uh, things is going to um, uh, is not going to make a difference. And um, so it's I mean it's a very pervasive problem. You look at most business books. You look at business schools. Uh, you look at what consultants actually bring into organizations, they're all operating off this this uh, traditional mental model, which destroys all of these things. So the book is partly a warning to say, look out for these, <laughs> look out for these people, because they have this mental model which will kill uh, what you're doing, even if you have um, productivity gains of 500%. doesn't matter how much. Is there any connection with the prisoner's dilemma? Make, you'll still be crushed. Is there any degree to which cooperative, sort of the mental um, model. Uh, collaboratively built solutions are uh, vulnerable to somebody who can, who can feel like they can take advantage of that moment? I don't believe so. I, I don't. This, this is a 
a set of assumptions which is not is not uh, liable to be uh, manipulated by by uh, by freeloaders. Uh, it's um, in fact because it's so transparent, uh, it's immediately apparent uh, what's going on. I mean, it's it's frighteningly uh, transparent, and that's one reason why uh, some companies back away is because it's so shockingly transparent that all of these um, routines that you see with, with freeloaders and whatnot, and uh, cover your backside routines going up and down the hierarchy, those things are immediately exposed. And so in a bureaucracy, when you introduce it, the first all of that stuff tumbles out on the table. And you're suddenly looking at this huge pile of garbage. And the, often the reaction is, well, my gosh, this caused all that garbage. But in fact, the garbage was always there. It just exposed the garbage that was there. And so the organizations that succeed are those that say, well, we need to clean the garbage up. But if you say, well, we're going to shovel the garbage back into the closet, um, then obviously the organization doesn't change. So it's, it's, it's frighteningly transparent. And, and in that sense, uh, not at all likely uh, the, the prisoner's dilemma where uh, it encourages people to, uh, I mean, to, uh, to to look after themselves. This this is about making exposing all of those routines and making them in, in practice impossible to carry out. I mean, just one practice that is really quite striking in these organizations is a daily stand-up in the morning where every member of the team says, "What did I do yesterday? What did I do? What am I going to do today? And what impediments are getting in the way of my work?" When every member of the team does that over a sustained period, everybody knows everything. There's no hiding. <laughs> everybody knows exactly who's contributing what and what's happening in, in the group. And uh, for some people, this there's this a fascinating parallel between once you that do this, and you can, uh, what are you called advisories and some level of, of it's an early morning block where it's not about any particular subject, but it is sort of, are you on track? How are things going? What can we do to help you? And at some point, I'm I'm going to try and dive into the, the, that comparison because it feels as though, again, your discussion exists at two fascinating levels. One of which is the teacher as uh, employee or or worker, and, and the second is the student actually as co-worker in the creation of their own education, and and how do those practices uh, actually? go down to that level when you view the student as the co-creator or the creator of their own education. Right. Terrific. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about I really that. appreciate it. I left the recorder on so we've got we have to run now. Have a great uh, night. Take care. Fun Thanks for with coming. You. And, uh, and um, let's stay in touch. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Really appreciate it. I am going to close the room down so the recording can process. Take care and good night.